Welcome to Climate History, the podcast on what the past can tell us about the present and future of climate change. I'm Dagmar de Groot, Associate Professor of Environmental History at Georgetown University, and I'm excited to announce that from now on I'll be joined by my very first PhD student, Emma Moswild. Welcome, Emma. Thanks. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm starting my first year as a PhD student in environmental history at Georgetown, focusing on agriculture and climate change in the long 18th century. Well, I am thrilled to have you on board. Together, we're relaunching the podcast, believe it or not, by popular demand, and we'll now follow a roughly monthly schedule. I'm really excited about the list of episodes that we have planned for this fall. Today, we're welcoming Kevin Antrokaitis to the podcast. Kevin is an associate professor of geography at the University of Arizona. He is a paleoclimatologist, dendrochronologist, and earth systems geographer who uncovers and interprets climate change over the past 2,000 years. He's currently active in projects that identify past climactic trends in seemingly every part of the earth. He uses many techniques to reconstruct those trends, including tree ring science or dendroclimatology, climate field reconstruction and spatiotemporal data analysis, stable isotope analysis, proxy systems modeling, and the integration of paleoclimate data with general circulation modeling. He's led teams that have published some of the most important scholarship on past and present climate change, and he tweets at Thirsty Gecko. Professor Anjakaitis, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's, it's really great to be here. Thanks for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in climate change, especially past climate change, and just tell us a little bit, a little something about your journey to where you are now. Yeah. So actually, the journey started not too far from where I'm sitting right now, where we're sitting right now here in, uh, at Georgetown. Um, I came to Georgetown School of Foreign Service as an undergraduate, um, and I think I was pretty committed to becoming a lawyer at that point. Um, I had law school in my sights. I was going to take all the right classes, and that's where I was going. And um, during that first year as an undergraduate uh, in the School of Foreign Service, um, that interest started to wane. I, uh, I don't know what exactly it was, but something made me decide that I, I didn't want to be a lawyer anymore. Um, but now here I am at the School of Foreign Service, I'm taking all the economics classes, all the political science classes, all my theology classes, and suddenly I don't know what I want to do. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was a little disconcerting, actually. But I came back for my second year, and, and at the time, at least, they had uh, students um, and their parents, actually, were here at the same time. And you can go around and go to talks by different faculty members in SFS and, and decide uh, which subfield you were, you were going to go into. Um, and I actually went to a talk by uh, Tim Beach, uh, who was faculty here at the time, and he was talking about his work in Mesoamerica. Um, some of the work he talked about was work he was doing as a geoarchaeologist at Maya sites, but he was also talking about uh, looking at how uh, sea level rise um, and mangrove ecosystems interacted and, and how mangroves responded to sea level rise. So. Something about that talk really spoke to me. And then also I took a class uh, by uh, John McNeil, a historian. And um, his class was, 
it's really a very expansive history class, and it was it was mostly focused on the Caribbean and, and Central America, uh, but there's a very strong sort of demographic and environmental uh, components of that class, and I think those two things really um, made me realize that not only did I like history, which I had known, but um, that history was this really interesting field, um, and that maybe I could I could carve something out of this that, that wasn't just a pathway to law school at the time. Um, so being an SFS, I had to choose a major, um, and I decided to do the science, technology, and, and international affairs major. And at the time, that was a relatively small group of people, um, relatively few faculty members. Um, but uh, I figured out that you know I, I could kind of do a mix of the things I enjoyed, uh, history and economics and political science, and I could also start to do something which I had kind of left behind, uh, which was was take some science classes. So that was that was how this started. Um, and then a, a few big things happened for me. One was uh, I wanted to go study abroad. Um, I figured that my Spanish would never get any better unless I actually lived abroad uh, with a family. Um, but at the time, at least, there were relatively conventional options to go study abroad. So I could go to Santiago and be in a big city, a big university, but in Chile. I could go to uh, Buenos Aires and I could be in a big university in a big city, but you know, just speaking Spanish. And something about that didn't, wasn't as exciting for me. So I started looking at other options. Um, and one of the options that appeared was something called the Institute for Tropical Studies in Costa Rica. It was run by the University of Kansas. And um, you, the plan was that you would live in a rural community in Costa Rica, you would take classes on anthropology and ecology, um, and this sounded to me exactly what I, what I wanted to do. Um, and it took a bit of time, it took a bit of convincing to get the dean's office to, to let me do this, but um, I did end up getting to live, uh, go to Costa Rica and live for a year in the rainforest, taking these classes, um, doing science, but also anthropology and, and learning the history of, of different communities in Central America. Um, but a very holistic sort of way of thinking about both environment and, and how humans both relate to and respond to their environment. Um, I think the thing that really sent me towards climate, though, was uh, what I got to do the, the um, year after I graduated from Georgetown. So um, I got an opportunity to go to the Yucatan Peninsula and work at uh, an actual the excavation of a Maya site in the Yucatan. <laughs> And uh, the site at the time was called Chinchuk Mio, and uh, Tim Beach, again, from, who was at Georgetown at the time, uh, brought me down to, to be part of his team doing geoarchaeology. And what was particularly interesting about the site was that it was in northwest Yucatan, and um, this is a very uh, difficult landscape to, to survive in. Um, much of the area doesn't have soil, uh, when the rainy season comes, a lot of these areas flood. The soil that is there is of poor quality. Uh, it's a scrub forest, a very difficult environment uh, to live in. And yet, the site of Chinchuk Mill was, was a large, expansive. It covered a huge amount of area. And um, as the archaeologists started to do excavations, they realized that, um, at least in the city center, people were quite wealthy. They had jade. They had uh, carved bits of, of coral, uh, elaborate burials. Um, they had a very uh, impressive material culture. And so then the question becomes, 
what is this large and poten potentially wealthy or apparently wealthy and well-off site doing in this in this really difficult landscape? And so at the time, you know, I sort of had or was thinking of two things, and one was was what ended up probably being the right answer and what the archaeologists thought, which was this site was, was situated where it could control trade. Um, it had through its economic connections uh, established this sort of ability to not only sustain itself but but trade in, in these valuable material goods. But what occurred to me at the time was, well, what if sort of funny to think about this now, but what if a thousand years ago that this site was a better place to live, that it was wetter, that you know, it wasn't so apparently arid and difficult. And so that's I, what I remember is one of the first times I started to think about past climate and, and how would you go about answering that question? Um, if, if that's the thing that explains this apparent discrepancy or this paradox, how would you go about actually answering that? So I remember that was the first time I sort of really got interested in questions about past climate. Um, was in this context of archaeology, particularly this this time I got to spend in Mesoamerica. So you came to climate through history, yeah, and off that way. Absolutely. Huh. I mean, I came to be a, a scientist interested in doing the type of research I do because of history, because of archaeology because of the human component, which I was sort of already interested in, and then and then realized that these were really interesting questions. And not only were the questions interesting, but um, the way you go about them is just sort of fascinating. Like we're going to find things on the landscape, and we're going to find ways to extract from them information that reveals this information about the past. Well, that's really interesting. I, I, I think a lot of people who do so-called paleoclimate, like climate in the past, mm -hmm. Um, they come to uh, history through climate, mm -hmm. right? So <laughs> the fact that you do the reverse maybe has played a role in some of the questions that you ask in your scholarship. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, this is a thread I've kept throughout the whole time that I've uh, directed first graduate school and then, and then my career towards this. So. Uh, Leaving School of Foreign Service, leaving Georgetown, um, I had managed to cobble together a, a fair number of, of science classes I had spent this year in Costa Rica, but yeah, I didn't have a conventional science degree by, by far, right? So mm -hmm. if I had wanted to apply to a, a geology department or an ecology department to do past or present climate environment, um, I probably wouldn't have gotten very far. I didn't have the conventional background. Mm -hmm. um, but geography turned out to be a welcoming place. Um, so I ended up getting a master's in geography and um, they were happy to take on someone with this uh, interdisciplinary background and, and these particular interests. So I went off to the University of Tennessee and uh, to do paleoecology. So uh, ways of reconstructing what environments, ecosystems have looked like in the past using, in this case, pollen and charcoal that was preserved in, in lake sediments. And uh, one of the reasons I decided to go to Tennessee was uh, my advisor there, Sally Horn, um, when I applied and I was going to be admitted, she said, uh, she looked at my background, she said, I, I've got exactly the project for you. We'll have you in the field within a couple months. You'll be coring lakes. You know, it's in an archaeological context. She's like, it's just the right project for you. And to have someone say that, to actually have you know, known what I was interested in and be able to identify a project that would be good on was like, wow. So 
of all the places I applied to, actually, went to University of Tennessee in Knoxville for my master's. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, <laughs> Sally had me in the field, coring legs, you know, within the first couple months of my, of my master's. Hmm. So again, I'm doing paleoecology and bringing up tubes of mud from a lake. I'm uh, extracting pollen from the sediments. I'm looking at it under a microscope. I'm making inference about how um, the forests, these tropical forests have changed, but it's all within this context of the dominant force on that landscape, the way I was interpreting how those forests had changed was through human action. Uh, mm -hmm. People burning and clearing the forest for agriculture, maintaining agriculture in time, at times intensive, and then responding when Europeans arrived um, and seeing first the regrowth of the forest, but then um, settlement of Europeans, the arrival of coffee agriculture. So everything I was looking at through this, um, these various scientific tools was something I interpreted in light of how humans had modified the landscape. So keep in mind. So I think when people think about climate change, they think about human action, mm -hmm. right? For the most part, they think about present-day anthropogenic warming, mm -hmm. maybe over the last century. But what has caused our climate to change over the past 2,000 years mm -hmm. then? And how big were these changes I mean, in your research? Like, what do you find? Yeah. So when you look back 2,000 years, um, even before you start burning a lot of fossil fuel, before we start changing the atmospheric composition, there are changes in the climate system, even on these sort of year-to-year, decade-to-decade timescales. Um, and so the question is why? What is it that causes this variability? Um, so part of my work, my recent work particularly, has been trying to tease out the signals of what we call forced climate variability or forced climate change and internal or, or natural, uh, which isn't the best word, um, because there are natural forcings that can change climate too. Um, and so when we do look back, we see a couple of different signals in climate history of the last 2,000 years or so. Um, one is we do seem to sense, or, or sorry, um, detect uh, the influence of solar variability. It's subtle, it, it responds mostly not to sort of the decade-to-decade -decade variability, but these sort of grand solar minima. Um, it does seem to be a signal of that although we don't understand exactly why. So those are low, put, uh, low times in solar yeah. output. Basically. Right, yeah. exactly. So times when the sun was putting out relatively little energy. Mm. But again, we're talking about fairly small changes um, in the amount of, of energy coming from the sun. And it's hard to understand exactly why the climate system would show those. So that's still an area of study. One of the big signals we do see, and something that's been the focus of my work, is uh, volcanic eruptions. Mm. So if you get a sufficiently large volcanic eruption, if the material coming out of that volcano uh, is full of sulfur, if that material that's full of sulfur can get up into the stratosphere, so uh, up into the upper parts of the atmosphere, then that sulfur can um, actually uh, block incoming radiation from the sun, incoming energy from the sun, um, and actually cool the earth for a period of one or two, uh, maybe a few more years. Um, and so if you do look back over the last 2,000 years, some of the most dramatic changes or some of the most uh, rapid coolings you see are associated with volcanic eruptions. Uh, so we've been trying to understand, uh, using both the combination of, of physical science approach, modeling, climate dynamics, but also this evidence that we gained from paleoclimate proxies, so things like the widths of tree rings, the wood density of tree rings, the chemical composition of corals and things like that. Um, 
trying to understand exactly uh, both the mechanisms by which um, volcanoes affect the climate system, and then what we can learn about the physics of the climate system, how the climate system responds to these perturbations, these sort of shocks, uh, may tell us a lot about um, how good our models are for simulating the climate system um, and uh, how well we can do in, in trusting models that, that predict the future. So how do you actually identify past climate, so reconstruct mm -hmm. yeah. past climate change and how reliable are these reconstructions ultimately? Yeah. So um, as a paleoclimatologist, like the, the, the material I'm using are what we call proxies. Um, and what do we mean by proxies? What we need is something that prior to having weather stations, prior to having thermometers, um, way before satellites, was actually on the landscape. Um, and that something about how that, that archive was formed. I'm going to use archive here, and then we can talk about how <laughs> paleoclimatologists use archive and historians use archives. Something about how that proxy was formed reflects the climate or environment at the time it was formed. And there's a way to know when that was. So to do paleoclimate, you need two things. You need something that's still surviving on the landscape that you can sample from and, and glean information about past environments through its structure and then a way to tell at what time that was formed. So what are examples of this? Sometimes it's easier to think about examples. Tree rings are, are often the classic one that people think of, and this is the primary proxy that I work. And so if you think about a tree every year, it's at least in high latitudes, temperate latitudes, it's putting on another growth ring. Um, and the growth rings that are closer to the center of the tree are older than the ones that are on the outside of the tree. If you can find an old enough tree, what you have is a record of hundreds, maybe if you're lucky, thousands of rings. And each one uh, notes like it re registers when bark is formed, basically, right? No. So what's happening if you go to your average tree right now, listeners out there, if you go to your average tree and you look at that tree, underneath the bark of that tree is a layer of cells that um, can become many different types of cells. And so those cells divide, and then if uh, the cells that are on the inside of that layer, which we call the cambium, become the, what we call the xylem, and they're the water-conducting cells in the tree. And those are what we see if you sort of walk by a stump or you look at the end of a cut tree, that's what you're seeing as those rings are those old water-conducting tissues. Mm -hmm. um, and then every year, a tree is going to grow, and that cambium is going to put more cells on the inside. It's going to put some on the outside, too. Those cells have different functions. But the one that gives us the information is those cells that form underneath the bark um, and that become those water-conducting tissues and that form those rings. Mm. So that's what we're using for that information. The fact that they're formed annually, that the tree wakes up in the spring, that it responds to how warm or how wet it is during the growing season, and then as the days get short, as the days get cold, that they stop growing and they cease production of those cells, and they go into dormancy. That sort of seasonality of production, from dormancy to activity and back to dormancy, gives you those really distinct rings that people will recognize from walking past a stump or, or looking at a bit of furniture. <laughs> and it's those widths of those rings that we can use as information. Right? A tree that's growing in a really arid environment like Arizona, where I'm from, 
uh, if it's got a lot of water, it can put on a wide ring. It can grow a lot, it can add a lot of cells. Um, if it's a dry year in Arizona, if the rains are weak, if the monsoon fails, um, then that will be a narrow ring. Conversely, if you go up to Alaska, where I've worked, and you go all the way to the last tree um, in the Brooks Range in Alaska, that tree is mostly being limited in its growth by temperature. So a warm year will allow that tree to put on a big, wide ring. Um, a cold year means that it doesn't have very long to grow, and it doesn't grow very well if it's on a narrow ring. So now we've got both the things we need, right? That's the ingredients. We've got something that formed at a time in the past. The nature of that formation, whether it's a wide or narrow ring, um, reflects the climate, wet or dry, warm or cold. And because the tree is putting on annual rings, we can actually figure out the exact year which that ring is formed. Mm -hmm. So now we've got all the ingredients to do paleoclimate. We've got a way to tell time, and we've got something that was on the landscape hundreds of years ago. And its growth, in this case, the tree, reflects the climate in, the, in that year. So now we've got the ingredients. We can do this with corals. Corals also put on annual growth increments. In their case, the geochemistry, so the, the actual um, chemical composition of the coral skeleton can be analyzed to determine the uh, warmth of the water in which they were growing. Ice cores accumulate a layer of snow and, and ice every year. Uh, that can be used to interpret climate at high latitudes. Lakes are this wonderful archive that I learned about as a master's student, accumulating everything that's sort of on the landscape, pollen, uh, soils, dust, uh, other little living and, and non-living things. And if you then can take a core, if you can extract a tube of that mud from the bottom of the lake, the top layer of mud is going to be that most recent bit of mud and that most recent bit of pollen and that most recent bit of evidence from the landscape, and then deep down in that core, you're going to find the oldest mud, the oldest pollen, the oldest evidence of what was going on in that landscape. So all these things are proxies. They're not weather stations, they're not satellites, um, but we can, uh, if we know when they are formed and we know something about what causes them to take that form, we can estimate climate from that. Do they ever disagree with each other, and what do you do if they, if they do? Yeah, all the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. You know, I, emphasizing that, that these aren't instruments, right? They're not just measuring one thing. So if you think about all the things that could determine, let's think about these lakes. So a lake every year, it's gathering a little bit of mud on the bottom. Um, what's flowing into that, that lake? Well, maybe pollen from trees around the lake. Well, what's in determining, you know, which trees are growing around the lake? Well, maybe it's a combination of temperature and precipitation. Maybe a certain type of vegetation will be present when the temperature is just so and the amount of precip is just so. But also maybe humans come along and modify that landscape. Um, maybe there's a volcanic eruption that fundamentally wipes out what's on the landscape and something else comes after it. So all these, nearly all these proxies we look at, they're not simple weather statements. They're not thermometers, they're not rain gauges. They're integrating some signals on the landscape. So what we try to do is find places or find proxies or find measurements we can make where it's relatively unambiguous that one thing caused that, say, width of that ring, or one thing is controlling the type of pollen that ends up in a lake. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of times we, we don't find that. And so mm -hmm. you may find disagreements between proxies because even if they're sitting on the same landscape, uh, maybe they're recording a, a mix of different signals. One is temperature, one is precip. Um, 
maybe they're actually recording in different seasons. Maybe the lake reflects what's happening in the winter and the trees right next door are a summer signal. So we always have to think and, and understand that, you know, that these are not simple measurements. These are not instruments. Uh, they are often living systems like trees or they're complex geochemical systems like corals uh, and, that, and to treat them like that. Mm. that they're not um, simply sensors put out in the landscape, but, but things that are recording perhaps multiple signals at multiple time scales. Mm -hmm. yeah. So when we think about these data or these systems mm -hmm. as a source effectively that you can utilize taking them, of course, with a grain of salt mm -hmm. in your work, I'm wondering how historians can also use these same types of sources, which like you said, they're an archive mm -hmm. of a sort, perhaps not the sense, yeah. um, not in the sense that people are, are used to thinking about archives, but mm -hmm. yeah, how can historians use these types of sources? Yeah, I think a lot of times that um, from the point of view of a historian, the things I'm talking about are, are secondary sources. Right? You can go and download somebody's estimate of what temperature was like, but um, you're not reading that in the mm -hmm. book or so forth. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's another way to look at it, though, and, and uh, imagine that there is somebody hundreds of years ago writing things down. Um, Often there was. There was, yeah. <laughs> but let's imagine in this case, and I think this is also the case, that they're not necessarily an objective uh, both viewer or, or uh, recorder of what they're seeing. They're writing from a point of view. They may even have a reason to uh, write down things or emphasize things uh, for their own reason. And you as historians, when you're reading primary sources, have to keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. What would, you know, not, not so much trust, but you know, what was this person's motivation? Uh, when are they writing? What are they observing? What were they in position to observe? Uh, you have to keep that in mind too when you're using your primary sources. And in many ways, proxies are the same way. So if you go and download tree rings, mm -hmm. um, you know, you have to think, or we have to think as well, paleoclimatologists think the same way. Okay, what are this tree's biases? Um, is it uh, a particular species that records a particular season? Um, is it in a site uh, that might have been particularly wet compared to the rest of the trees around it or particularly cold? So, um, you know, the idea that uh, what we're relying on um, is never free of some kind of bias. Um, is a filter through which sort of uh, we see the past. Um, it's not that dissimilar, if you think, of, of sort of even archives that you go into or the archives, the mud and the wood that, that I use. So always being mindful of um, not allowing yourself necessarily to be tricked by this idea that these are perfect recorders of the past. Um, applying our own sort of understanding of, of how these things get written down how they get recorded in proxies and um, you know, treating, treating paleoclimate data in the same way, that it is what happened on the landscape. Right? The pollen that arrived in that lake is the pollen that fell from trees or, or was blown off trees and eventually found its way into that lake. That's true. How do you then interpret that in terms of what is the vegetation? Are all the trees equally contributing pollen? Mm -hmm. um, is it the chance that some of the pollen fell on the ground and got washed in later? These are biases that, that you have to keep in mind if you're doing paleoclimate, but they're not necessarily different than the kind of biases that humans can apply to describing their own 
and the surroundings. So I think I think it can be used as primary data. Um, and then the trick is just to, as you understand the system, as you speak a language, um, as you know the context in which something was was recorded in your archives, the same thing is necessary on a on a natural landscape, on a, on a forest or in a lake or in a tree range. Is what is the language that this tree is speaking? What is the context in which this layer of mud was laid down? So similar rules, similar awareness of bias, similar understanding of the of the context in which these data are, are being recorded and laid down. And then a similar incorporation then along with a similar treatment into the finished scholarship article, op-ed, talk, mm -hmm. whatever, that those these different sources can be employed in similar ways. I think so, right? I mean, if you're making an argument that the, the landscape is a certain way, um, to what extent do these natural archives um, support that? Mm -hmm. um, if you say, you know, if somebody writes down, for instance, that uh, the landscape was entirely clear for, for building or for agriculture, what does the pollen say? Does the pollen also record a transition from forest to field? So these can be complementary types of evidence. Um, one is not necessarily right and, and wrong, um, both of their biases, but do you converge on, a, on, a, on an inference? Uh, is there particular storylines or a particular analysis or interpretation of all these data that's consistent? Um, and in that way, there are similar archives. I think it's fair to say that historians don't always uh, uh, <laughs> approach these data just through the raw data, right? Mm -hmm. I think they're usually sure. taking the conclusions that uh, paleoclimatologists mm -hmm. have come up with yeah. and often taking that at face value. Mm -hmm. Would you guard against that approach? Yeah. Should they go beyond just the conclusions and the secondary scholarship that mm -hmm. they've found? How should they do that? Yeah. It's a big ask um, to ask a historian to turn around and say, okay, I'm going to evaluate whether this reconstruction using this particular proxy is valid. Um, that's a big ask. Uh, and I, I don't think I would say that that's the way forward. Um, not everyone can be completely conversant in all these systems. Heck, even paleoclimatologists specialize in particular systems. So if it really came down to the, the geochemistry of the um, plankton that live on the bottom of the ocean and how they end up in ocean sediments, I would not uh, be the one to wax uh, poetic about those particular details, whereas <laughs> I'm comfortable talking about others. And I'm sure you feel the same way as historians. There's certain areas where you're going to be very comfortable and others um, where you're familiar but perhaps don't feel like you're an expert. Mm -hmm. so, um, so how could I ask historians to do the same thing? So a couple of things to, to be wary of. Um, many times there have been uh, multiple attempts to, say, reconstruct, that is, estimate the state of something in the past. So a good example would be the El Nino Southern Oscillation System. Mm -hmm. If you go on to the NOAA data center or you start to read the literature, what you'll see is there's probably been a dozen attempts to uh, reconstruct, estimate um, sea surface temperatures in the eastern tropical Pacific that are associated with this El Nino Southern Oscillation System. It's an important interannual weather phenomenon that really organizes climate around, reorganizes climate around the globe. So how to pick, and I think 
the worst thing someone could do is pick the one that looks like the thing they expected. Mm-hmm. Right? What those, which I think often happens. Which often happens, <laughs> yeah, and which I think is, is not the way to go. You see this not just with ENSO reconstructions, but with temperature reconstructions. Mm-hmm. In fact, there's some that are a decade and a half old that still pop up because they have, mm-hmm. you know, they're accessible or they have certain characteristics, a length, um, a smoothness even, mm-hmm. that, that um, makes them available for comparison to other sources. But there's a dozen, 20 uh, reconstructions of past temperatures that one could look at. So how to, how to use these is, I think, to think about them as all attempts uh, to reconstruct the same phenomena and therefore as some sort of range of uncertainty. So if your argument relies on one particular estimate of El Nino or is only valid for one particular reconstruction of past temperature, that's the sort of thing where you 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 know you have to take that on board for your inference. It's like how much do I believe or, or can put faith in this particular inference when it only appears in this alignment of this one factor, this one reconstruction hypothesis. Um, so that's one thing. Be wary of multiple attempts to reconstruct the thing, the same thing, and use those multiple reconstructions as a way to estimate the uncertainty and how well we know those things. Past El Nino Southern Oscillation, we know relatively poorly. If you download a dozen or so reconstructions, in many ways they'll look fundamentally different in ways that would make it difficult to interpret them if you knew a certain historical event happened in this year. Maybe on the other hand, if you know a certain historical event happened this year and you look at a dozen or so El Nino events, they all happen to agree in that year. Maybe that would give you confidence in that. Um, the other thing that I think is, is most important is for historians and, and paleoclimatologists to, to talk. Um, often the strengths or weaknesses of a particular um, reconstruction might be obvious to the paleoclimatologists, might take it for granted, um, but it wouldn't necessarily be on its face, something that would be obvious to someone that wasn't familiar with the data. Are there particular timescales at which this reconstruction is valid? Sure, look at it from decades to centuries, but don't trust the year-to-year wiggles. That's nice. Things like that, right? Do you necessarily know that from downloading it? Absolutely not. So yeah. um, I think really a lot of times that comes down to communication. Um, in the absence of all of us being specialists on everything, which I don't foresee happening, um, these kind of collaborations, these kind of even just discussions, um, knowing a paleoclimatologist you can go to to ask something about particular records, or for us, knowing a historian who can provide you the context and steer you towards um, valid interpretations or more questionable ones is, is really important. This is where this true multidisciplinary work comes into play, uh, assuming we're not all going to know everything about it. So um, I know of several environmental historians who are skeptical of using uh, climate reconstructions because they argue that these reconstructions change all the time. Mm-hmm. So you're basically, you're, it's like you're building a castle on sand, mm-hmm. right? Um, and an example of this might be circulation changes. There have been reconstructions of circulation changes and books based on those reconstructions. I won't go into details, but those books are now dated, and they were dated basically the year that they were published. Mm-hmm. So how would you avoid that mm-hmm. kind of pitfall? Yeah. Uh, is there any way of doing it, or is that just the price you pay for doing this really innovative kind of scholarship? Yeah, I think um, in any field where the cutting edge is, is where you want to be, you're going to run less risk. So right now... Um, 
attempts to reconstruct large-scale circulation of the atmosphere, certainly, or even lo very low-frequency modes of ocean variability um, are challenging for the data that we have in federal climate um, and for the methods. And the mix of methods and data, you know, will probably, at least for several years, continue to give slightly or maybe very different mm -hmm. um, results. And that's, that's the nature of a fast-moving field. Um, and, you know, I think historians should be aware that parts of this are, are fairly, parts of climate science are, are fairly well settled, but parts of, the, particularly the reconstruction challenge are going to be up, updated, changed, or maybe even different versions. It may not be that the newest version is better than the old version either, um, or it might be. So I, I actually think that this is a risky run. Um, I think a way to avoid really going too far down a particular road, though, is again, to try and get a sense of the field. Um, have people completely said that this is groundbreaking, this is likely to be absolutely the answer? Um, or is this something where you know, they expect that another group uh, making a similar or, or allied effort or, or a different approach will come to a different answer? Mm. Um, it's, it's the risky take. It's always a risky take. Um, but keeping in mind then that the uncertainty that comes with those things um, and how strongly you feel about the imprints you're going to make and the conclusions you're going to come to from your archives um, might be tempered by how confident a group of paleoclimatologists are about the particular record you're going to invest in as, as part of your interpretation. We're, we're talking a lot about like precisely the inferences that you make and why is this kind of work important today and why are these inferences that you're making um, worth making? Yeah. I mean, I think that people go into studying this for a number of reasons. Um, probably the simplest is that the past is really interesting, right? that, that crazy things have happened in the past. So if we think about volcanic eruptions, um, much larger volcanic eruptions than anyone witnessed in the 20th century have occurred over the last 1,000 or 2,000 years. Um, the size of them, the amount of um, material they lofted into the atmosphere. So if you give the Earth system enough time, you can watch it doing incredibly interesting things. Um, that's also the benefit. We are limited by a relatively short amount, amount of instrumental data. You know, maybe in Europe, there's places you could even get 300 or 200 years of reasonable historical climate data. Um, there's other places where you find essentially none. There are certain places in the Tibetan Plateau, certain places in the top tropics, there's no instrumental data. So on the whole, we're dealing with a relatively short window that we use instruments and formal measurements to understand the climate system. Um, but the climate system is, is capable of this entire range of, of behavior, and not even just on the last thousand or two thousand years. If we think about past warm periods in the, the Earth's history where uh, palm trees and alligators were at the, the poles, um, it's, it's clear that the Earth system can go through these amazing transformations. And we want to understand that, not only because it's interesting, but it tells us something about the physics and the chemistry and the biology of the Earth system that we're not going to get from just the short period that we've had to monitor over the last century, that we're not going to get from the current environment, which is already reflecting a mix of sort of natural climate variability and the things we've done to the climate system. Um, 
And if you think also about how we predict the future using computer models, um, those computer models have by and large been developed on our sort of modern understanding of quantum physics, mostly compared to, again, that instrumental, recent instrumental, short instrumental record. It's about 150 years? Maybe 150 years, mm -hmm. but even then, Go back a hundred. How many weather stations really are there? And where are they? And where are they? And <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. that's the other thing. How many of them are in the tropics? Mm. How many of them are somewhere in the ocean, particularly mm. the Southern Ocean, Antarctica? So you know, we actually haven't been observing the planet globally for more than a few decades, and even you know that last century of records is fairly robust in the large scale, but, but fairly um, still lacking at the local or regional scale, mm -hmm. particularly in the tropics, particularly in the southern hemisphere, particularly over the oceans. Mm -hmm. So this is our opportunity to actually look at a much longer time frame to observe the Earth system before we started adding a lot of CO2 to the atmosphere, to um, look at a range of, of large events like large volcanic eruptions, uh, deep solar minima and the solar, solar um, output was very weak. But also, and I think this is really critical, to watch as many years as possible or as many seasons as possible of the climate system going through its natural variability. There's some amount of natural internal variability in the system. Um, and in some things, particularly like precipitation, drought, that's a huge amount of the variability. A lot of what you're looking at, even modern day droughts, is reflecting the internal variability of the climate system. Now, as humans, we have a tendency to say, look at this drought, or you know, look at this particular feature, and imagine that something must have caused it. And that's how we think about things, right? I mean, we're, we're naturally uh, creatures that, that seek explanation, that seek causality, that seek patterns. We're really good at seeing patterns. Um, and what we need to keep in mind is that this, this Earth system of ours is really good at producing a range of variability that just arises stochastically, randomly, internally from the interaction of a bunch of fluids, ocean and atmosphere, a bunch of land, and a bunch of energy. You can produce an amazing array of variability across multiple time scales without having a big volcanic eruption, without having CO2, without having changes in solar variability. And probably there's a good chance that natural variability has been really important in human history. So training ourselves to see the range of, of behavior that the Earth system is capable of, even when we're not giving it the big push that we are now from CO2, is really enlightening. And we can, we can start to understand all those sort of types of behavior, both the internal variability and also the forced variability. Mm -hmm. I think your emphasis on the importance of global data is really significant, that even if we do have 150 years from some parts of the world, it's not really a complete record or is it as complete mm -hmm. of a record as it could be. Yeah, exactly. And if you think about, let's think about archives again, right? I mean, would you like a weather station or a satellite to have been over in Antarctica for the last few hundred years? That would be great. Well, we're not going to get that. So what's our next best thing? Well, we'd have ice cores. Yeah. Are ice cores perfect recorders of the climate variability that we you would like, no, definitely not. But you know, just like a um, writer with a certain point of view, uh, writing about a certain topic, ice cores are recording something about the system that happened. And if we can know how to interpret it as well as avoid walking into bias, then we've got more information than we would have otherwise. Um, and I think that's the thing that 
most paleoclimatologists would agree with, which is, would I rather have a weather station here? Absolutely. But at least the trees were there. Mm-hmm. At least that coral was mm-hmm. sitting in that shallow tropical ocean. At least that ice core has been accumulating year after year of snow. Um, information is always valuable. We just have to know how to use it in a way that doesn't fool ourselves. Speaking of fooling ourselves, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you and I are unfortunately active on social media. Um, and uh, we deal a lot on social media with random people, uh, with, with journalists as well. And uh, sometimes the journalists people, would be happy to know that they're not random. Well, I was going to say, sometimes random people who are journalists. <laughs> and um, you know, a lot of frustrations, I think, with um, how climate history, uh, paleoclimatology, is presented. Um, and frankly, um, you know, science of, of modern uh, climate changes as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether that's, uh, you know, uh, scholarship on depopulation and climate change mm-hmm. or mi- migration and climate change, yeah. <laughs> you name it. Um, so what, in your opinion, is the biggest thing that many journalists, maybe also just uh, many random people, uh, get, get wrong about climate change? Yeah. I'd say there's a few things that you kind of spot. Um, and one is not um, particular to social media, but you see this in general, which is, and this goes back to the issue of scale, thinking about large-scale features of the climate system, like the Little Ice Age or the medieval warm period, as being one thing everywhere. So you'll see a fair amount of this, which is the Little Ice Age was cold and wet. Mm. And starting from that premise, then people will interpret other evidence or other lines of evidence. Um, we have enough information, I'd say, about at least the Ice Age, you know, the medieval period, much of the last thousand years, to be able to do better than that, to, to actually look at a region and um, take a, a, a more refined view of it, look at year to year, decade to decade. Um, understand when it was warm and when it was cold. And these things really matter. I mean, if the best we can do is say this 400 years was wet and cold, I feel like that's a limited use to, to most historians, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a mismatch in this sort of the, the scale and the refinement of the paleoclimate data and, and historians' um, sources. We can do better than that. I, I say with tree rings and most of the, the climate data we have in many parts of the world, we can tell you with some uncertainty what a particular year was like in a particular location. So I think um, encouraging people to move away from these heuristics, these sort of broad-scale ideas that we have that are rooted in a centennial-scale global climate and starting to think more about the scale that humans interact with climate. What is happening here, in this community, in this city, in this set of years, in this season? so, you know, humans are not, by and large, responding to 400 years of global climate, right? responding to what's going on mm-hmm. in their particular mm-hmm. environment, on their particular landscape, and things like that. So that's one thing, is, is moving from this sort of global cartoon that we have uh, and using the, the resources we, we actually, these days, have to say things about um, past climate or past environments much more specifically to a time and place. Um, Along with that is, I think, and we're all, we all have to guard against this, is excessive determinism. Um, this happened and therefore this happened, right? 
volcanic eruption happened, and, and at some point, a few years after that, there was a famine, and these two things are linked, and therefore volcanoes cause famine, which, which caused this sort of moment in history. Um, and I think, again, one of the things that paleoclimate potentially offers is uh, this, um, you know, sanity check on, on the range of behavior that's possible from the climate system, even without big volcanic eruption, even without CO2. Um, the climate system can, can produce a lot of varied and sometimes rather severe behavior, cold years. Um, so in our recent uh, climate reconstruction, going back to 750 uh, CE, uh, seven of the ten coldest years of that time period are associated with volcanoes. The three don't appear to be. So, you know, what does that tell you? It's it's that um, the fourth component of climate, the, this, the part of climate that responds to um, solar or volcanic or CO two, is is potent. But there's also this underlying internal variability that is certainly important at that time and place. Um, so not being excessively deterministic about climate, but also not being excessively deterministic about history. Right? Mm -hmm. That um, different societies, different um, peoples throughout time have had different strategies for dealing with the range of variability they already encountered. Probably largely successfully, given the, the length that some of these uh, cities or, or, or societies persisted on, on a highly variable landscape. Um, so, uh, Keeping that in mind, keeping in mind that there were a lot of times when the climate was variable and humans weathered it perfectly well or even thrived. Um, thinking about the diverse responses um, that humans have to climate or environmental variability. And there were a relatively plastic species that we've adapted to a range of, of environments. Um, having seen that, then, maybe this provides opportunities. Why do we sometimes weather climate shocks and why do we not? What, what is it that determines uh, whether a society thrives in response to climate variability or change, uh, remains unchanged, or really goes through one of these collapse or demise cycles, if you will. Um, so having left sort of the global and the deterministic behind, maybe we have a better chance to sort of understand um, how these things actually work. If the public misses um, some of these finer nuances, how can we present this work to a broader audience? Mm -hmm. I think we're pretty fortunate in what we do as both uh, paleoclimatologists and historians in that we have this um, wonderful long and, and diverse record to draw from. So from the climate side, again, if you go back in time, you can find these uh, mega droughts, we call them, in North America. Uh, well before uh, CO2 started to rise, not apparently in response to changes in solar variability or volcanic eruptions. You can find these 20 or 30 year long periods where vast parts of, say, North America or Asia were drier than usual. Um, that perspective is made possible by this sort of long view that we have through time, through centuries or millennia. Um, and it's, it can be very evocative. Uh, for people to think about uh, a landscape and a, and a climate state that is so much different than, than the one they're familiar with, even just from um, their memory, uh, even just from, from the time they've been alive. So I think we have actually, by virtue of accessing time, deeper parts of time, um, a lot of really interesting stories to tell. And these stories do reveal something, I think, about the complexity of the climate system. 
why is there a mega drought uh, in the late 1200s in the southwest U.S.? It goes back to how we understand the climate system, but it also reveals the, this sort of diverse, um, kind of amazing, at times terrifying behavior that the climate system can go through. Mm. Um, and you as historians access a, a similar um, range of, of time and, and are able to see uh, really unique moments, perhaps contingent moments, but that also reveals the, the range of possibilities that societies have when responding or not responding to their environment, um, their neighbors, um, uh, their interactions with, with either a global system or a regional system. So I think we have really good stories to tell. And I think those stories uh, potentially reveal um, just the real richness that both the climate system and the Earth system, as well as, as human societies, can go through. So that when we think about the present, and we're tempted to say, this happened because of this, you know, there's no question this happened because of CO2, or there's no question that, that this event happened because of this, to be reminded that um, we have this length of, of history, Earth history, or human history, um, where so many things have happened, so many things have been contingent, so many things have been the result of, of a mixture of forces uh, that, that weren't exceptional at the time. And we have these really good stories to tell, and I think even just in telling those, even just in revealing those, um, that people come to appreciate um, what's possible, um, that maybe that chips away a little bit at determinism, at like this sort of, you know, this was definitely caused by this, um, and allows us to, uh, allows people an opportunity, allows us to tell a story, but allows people an opportunity to think about multi-causality, what are the things that contribute to this. Bring both of our fields together and you've got it even better. Because you have this real richness of uh, socio-environmental systems, coupled systems that feed back on one another. Um, you know, if if uh, you need to build terraces to retain water, you just uh, the human society has now just changed the geomorphology, the hydrology of the system. How has changing the hydrology of the system changed um, how water finds its way to rivers? Uh, so there's these feedbacks that we can start to explore when we talk to each other. Mm. What would your advice be to young women and men interested in following in your footsteps to be, in, in becoming a paleo uh, climatologist? Uh, you took kind of a, I, th I think it's fair to say, a meandering path. Yeah. I think a lot of people who actually find success in different fields do take a similar kind mm -hmm. of meandering path. But is there something uh, now that you would do differently? Mm -hmm. <laughs> or is there something that you really think you nailed? At a younger age. Let me do different first. I wish I'd taken more math. Mm -hmm. um, Don't we all? Yeah. <laughs> Not everybody, perhaps, but I wish I had, right? I, I think I was like, I know enough math. And the more I sort of try and um, bring together diverse data sets um, to run models that are the physical system or even social system, agent based models, um, the thing I'm constantly running up against is that. Uh, I wish I had more math. Mm -hmm. uh, so that may seem really specific, though. So maybe <laughs> take more math. Know. Take more math. <laughs> but also, you know, if you can, take more economics, take more history, uh, take more um, political science, because a lot of my interest and I think you know, when I have it, ability to bring together sort of 
climate science and earth science with sort of the human component is because I have this background that I got here first at Georgetown and then as a geographer um, at Tennessee. Uh, and that's not always the path that people take. Um, and, and yeah, sometimes I wish I was better at identifying rocks and um, you know could talk geophysics with the, with the <laughs> geophysical fluid dynamicists um, that I might have gotten if I took a traditional geology path towards where I got. But I will be forever thankful for um, all the, the social science and, and history and humanities that I had because I, I think it allows me to sort of think about this multi-causality and, and potentially be someone that gets to sit in these groups of interdisciplinary scholars and you know ask all these really interesting questions and, and be able to converse on these issues. So that, I, I wouldn't change my meandering path at all that way. I could just, I could probably just use a little, little more math. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's been a real thrill. Thanks uh, for having me. This has been a lot of fun. To learn more about climate change in the past, present, and future, visit historicalclimatology.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Climate History. Thanks for listening to the Climate History Podcast.